Bienvenidos a Crónicas de la Raza. Welcome to La Raza Chronicles. I'm Brenda Yescas. And on tonight's program, we have Vilma V speaking to Daniel Orosini, straight from Puerto Rico, giving us an update on the situation going on in that country. We also have Nina Serrano interviewing Rafael Jesus Gonzalez, poet laureate of Berkeley. He reads some of his poems about migration and freedom. Plus, we have new music, all this and much more. Stay tuned y no te lo pierdas. I'm Vilma V, and this is Boricua Blues Radio, and I have the pleasure of talking to Daniel Orsini. He is here in Berkeley, straight from Puerto Rico, and he is very active in one of the movements that has arisen since the hurricane in Puerto Rico. It's part of the grassroots community-centered relief initiative that has been taken on by the people in Puerto Rico, and he is part of the Center for Mutual Support. How are you doing this Afternoon, Daniel. I'm doing okay. Thank you, Vilma, for the invitation and uh, hello to every listener. So tell me a little bit about what's been happening since the hurricane. Just the update. Is there power there now? What What is your a day-to-day life of someone in Puerto Rico right now in March of 2018? Well, actually, for the majority of the people, it's been, uh, right now, it's a very heavy situation because the majority still doesn't have electricity at all. So lots of uh, communities also don't have water. So, yeah, it's a, a tough situation there. Um, there are, of course, some places that they have electricity, but the, the situation after the hurricane uh, in terms of the how infrastructure was uh, hidden by the hurricane and the, with the economical situation, like the result is a very, very difficult situation for the, for the vast majority of Puerto Ricans. So people had to fend for themselves, right? And now they're self-organizing. Tell us a little bit about how the genesis of that movement began. Tell me exactly what it's called. Yeah, it's called the Centro de Apoyo Mutuo. It's like a mutual aid uh, um, center. Mm-hmm. Well, the genesis is uh, of that center, yeah, is after Maria. But the spirit of that movement and perspectives of making this type of projects was before Maria, you know. Um, a lot of different projects and individuals are making this kind of projects around the, the island um, with different objectives in terms of the services given to the communities, but it was uh, before uh, Maria. So the Centro de Apoyo Mutuo was born the eighth day after Maria. It was like the most immediate response that uh, occurred in the whole Puerto Rico, basically, from any institution, uh, even the federal government or the local government. We started in a town called, or a city called Caguas. It is a, a city nearby on San Juan, the capital of the island. It has a population of like a 100,000 people. And yeah, Caguas was devastated, like Maria Paz, through the center of Caguas. Caguas is a valley, so it has a lot of, a lot of uh, mountainous um, parts. 
And when we started, we started with a, a popular kitchen. We because right now we're doing other uh, giving other services to the community, but we it started with a popular uh, kitchen because people doesn't have the the opportunity to go to the uh, to the groceries and buy things because they were all closed without electricity. People can go to uh, to the banks or to get money, whatever. So I've worked. Uh, I've been working before Maria with an organization that is called Center for the Political Educational and cultural development, CDPEC in Spanish, um, that it has a project, it developed a project four years ago that is called Comedores Sociales de Puerto Rico. That's like popular kitchen or social kitchens of Puerto Rico. And we were focusing ourselves uh, in the beginning in the uh, university campus of the University of Puerto Rico that has 11 campuses. So we, we do that like in three different campuses around the island. But the main one, it was in Rio Piedras, the main campus of uh, the UPR. And we have been doing that for four years. So when Maria hits us, we have a stock of, of food. We have like all the gas uh, pipes. We have all the stoves and, st and things like that. So our reaction, our, our actions just, um, you know, it was very fast action uh, of us. And yeah, that's basically uh, how we can act that that fast. So for you to have a notion um, of the gravity of the situation in terms of uh, how people were hungry at that eighth day in Caguas, when we, when we started, we believed that maybe we, we started with serving breakfast and lunches. So we believed like for breakfast, it could come like 50 people maybe because the only publication we made, it was the night before at like 7 p.m. that we just like go around the block with uh, speakers in the top of, in the roof of, of one of, of our cars, just telling people like, okay, tomorrow we'll be having like popular kitchen, giving breakfast at X time and giving lunches, at, uh, you know, with the other this over time. So we believe that, you know, uh, just a few people listen to that. For our surprise, 200 people uh, appear for breakfast. And 400 appears for lunch. Our notion was like, okay, we're probably gonna get a hundred maybe for lunch, but 400 appears. So yeah, in the kitchen, that was a very heavy task to cook for 400 people, expecting a hundred. So people that works in the, in the food industry <laughs> will understand me, but well, we did it and We were very enthusiastic about the project and on how people reacted. People were like, wow, like this is amazing. And, and they couldn't even understand that it wasn't uh, not a, a thing made by, by the people themselves. They were probably thinking that this was like the federal government or the local government. But when they knew like, oh, this is our, our community doing this for ourselves. So they were like very surprised and very enthusiastic too to become part of the project. That's what I want to ask you, a very practical question. You said that you went around with a loudspeaker. How have people been able to organize without internet, without cell phones in many, in many instances? Yeah. Um, what that, a challenge that must be. Yes, that puts us in the in the shoes of these organizers of the early 20th century, you know, that they don't have any cell phones at all. Yeah, like or when they did Grito de Lares. I mean, how did they manage? But of course, not everyone then set out. But yeah. Exactly. exactly. I, I have often said that the hurricanes have knocked Puerto Rico back to the 18th, 17th century. 
in terms of infrastructure and no communication. But what's astounding to me is how people still manage to organize themselves and communicate. So tell me, how does that happen? Yeah, that was a challenge. Uh, first, of course, because we are so used to using the cell phones and the Internet and, you know, all these technologies that, yeah, that was a challenge. But we find a way to connect with each other. So we knew where we where we were staying when when the hurricane passes. So, for example, I go to a friend of mine's house, and I didn't get to to meet with him. I I, I only see his mother, and I just write a note, you know, like Giovanni, I was here. I am my from my parents' house. So maybe we can meet. So when I get to my house. Giovanni also, <laughs> we're, we're at my house and he just, you know, wrote me almost the same note to me. <laughs> so yeah, we started like doing these old school things and, uh, and we have like our first meeting, like, uh, with that, doing that things. And yeah, from that uh, day on, from that meeting, that was like the, the kickstart, you know, to, to, to start this uh, Centro Apoyo Mutuo. And you're coming from the Centro in Caguas, but this has actually risen in different parts of the island. Is that correct? Correct. So how do you guys talk to each other? Are you sharing supplies? I mean, how is everyone independent? Which, of course, seems like they have to be autonomous. But what are the linkages that are occurring, if any, between these different centers? Yeah. So after the second week of, well, actually the first week of the camp getting, uh, being born, we, we get in touch with, uh, with different compañeros and compañeras around the island, you know, different activists to, to call, uh, for a, a meeting because we wanted to present as a strategy, political strategy, the building of Centro de Apoyo Mutuos all around the island. Because our experience in that week was like, wow, this type of project gives the people so much. It's so, uh, like. Yo, lo puedes decir en español si quieres. Okay, eh, sí, es que a veces también en español se me pierden las palabras. <laughs> este, le hace mucho sentido. It makes a lot of sense to the people. So, so yeah, we believe like this is a way to make popular power, you know, to gain people like ordinary people to our movement, to, to a movement that wants a Puerto Rico free from uh, imperialism, the one of Puerto Rico with uh, new values, you know, with solidarity, like in top of all of, uh, all of things, not like producing wealth. So, so from that meeting, then starts this, this sprouting of new camps all around the island. Now we have like, and I say we, but yeah, they're autonomous, as you said. There are like nine camps or projects similar to the camps all around the island. And, uh, maybe after a month after the all camps were like with their own thing, we convoked another meeting for all the camps. And that meeting was in Umacao, in the camp of Umacao that is called uh, Proyecto de Apoyo Mutuo. De Mariana, Barrio Mariana. So, yeah, we started like linking each other and finding some common grounds of, of a perspective, like what we are doing, uh, for what we are doing this. And basically we are almost, we, we were almost in the same page that we are doing this because we need autonomous community projects independent from the state. We want our, we want to build ourselves like how we get the, the electricity, how we get the water, how we get the food. The school system, like, we want to build that from ourselves because the state, what gives us, it's poison, basically. And, uh, and the 
the private sector, they only thinking in money. So we don't trust none of those two um, spectrums. And we are doing the things for ourselves without waiting for no one, you know, to do it for ourselves. How were you guys able then to get food and electricity and batteries and things when no one really had them? What you, it sounds like you had a stockpile from being active in the University of Puerto Rico and the movements there to, to stop privatization of the university and they were shutting down hundreds of schools. So I get that there was already some infrastructure, but It seems like after a day you'd run out of food or at least the first week. How did you keep being able to provide things for people when there was, you know, even the trucks weren't on the road after two weeks? Yeah. So here is when comes the importance of the diaspora. You know, the people, the Puerto Rican nation is like six million probably right now and or a little bit more. And of those six million, like three million or less are living in the island. So the majority of the Puerto Rican nation is outside the, the island and may, yeah, and of course it's mainly in the United States of America. And one of our political perspectives is that in the island of, or of these groups, you know, that are, are emerging right now, is that we need to to get closer to, to the diaspora because we not necessarily see the uh, action, you know, like contacting with each other in the diaspora, with the diaspora uh, too much in re uh, recent years. But now we see the importance of that, not only because they you, they gave us money, they gave us a lot of material and food and, you know, But the political importance, when the Junta de Control Fiscal, the board, that basically is a, a civil dictatorship. Mm -hmm. An appointed. Of course, yeah. A dictatorship meaning is uh, some ruling that, yeah, was, is, is imposed and it's not by an electoral, you know, uh, mm -hmm. it was not elected by the people. So, yeah, the United States imposed that Junta. Uh, so a lot of actions uh, against the Junta and of that Promesa Law passed by the Congress and signed by President Obama. A lot of the, of the political actions were made in the mainland of the, the you know, in the United States um, by the diaspora. So, and a lot of activists, important activists of Puerto Rico has been from the diaspora, like Oscar Lopez Rivera. He was, you know, living in Chicago and a lot of other comrades, you know, mm -hmm. on the nationalist movement and, um, Sia Pagan and yeah. exactamente. Mm -hmm. So, so yeah, the diaspora basically was the one that, uh, funneled or, um, Yeah, gives us a lot of materials and money for us to keep moving, but also the international solidarity, you know? Like, yeah, the Boricuas were there, but a lot of people from other parts of the world also were there. People from Europe, you know, like in Holland, they were making like a fundraising, a concert and all that thing for the camps. And in Spain, like Puerto Ricans that, that were in Spain, they were making talks and trying to make also, also some fundraising for Puerto Rico. Yeah, like all the world, you know, have moved around what is happening in Puerto Rico and they were, they're all helping us in different ways. And do you see then, is this, this is definitely a movement. Do you think it's a political movement insofar that it's going to try to seize power through elections or what, what does the future look like for this movement? Okay, uh, first of all, yeah, I can see this as a movement, but as I was, I were telling you, uh, this is a movement of autonomous, uh, autonomous movements. So we can see this movement by the lens of this centralized organization, you know, with a junta central, something like that. No, 
everyone or every community is doing their thing. We have some things in common, but everyone is doing uh, their thing and that is what is what is happening. It's not that we wanted for that to be like that, even though, yeah, I, I believe in this type of organization. Um, I believe in autonomous movements. But yeah, this is like at least my perspective. And I believe like the majority of this movement, like communities and activists think alike, is that we are not necessarily uh, looking to seize power. We are making power, you know, we are like building power from the communities. We are not from this perspective of, I don't know, this, uh, I don't know, like, let's say Marxist perspective of, or, uh, yeah, some anarchists maybe that, yeah, we need to take the control of the state in order to, uh, change things. No, we think more like with the Zapatista movement that we, we wanted to make our own power. Yeah, government, do whatever you want, but we are doing our thing. We're on the ground. Exactly. We're on the ground making it happen. Exactly. Where so, it's so far removed, you can make whatever, but really the facts on the ground is really what counts. Exactly. So our struggle with the government, I believe, will start when they will try to, uh, Put the, be in the, in the, in front of us, you know, like the, when they doesn't want us to continue what we are doing. So right now we could say we're kind of a, in, in a low key state, or I believe that the government sees us, you know, like, uh, yeah, this movement is, or these projects are not so, they don't uh, see as a exactly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. They maybe see more a threat, like the people, the activists that go down the street and block, you know, the carreteras in the street and go to occupy the, the offices of the Junta de Control Fiscal board, whatever. So yeah, they, I believe they are focuses on that type of activism because that's what ha has been the politics of Puerto Rico. Like this is a new, we call it like new politics in Puerto Rico, but it's not, not new. It, it's, uh, it has been happening all around the world for many decades. But for Puerto Rico, it's kind of new. This type of making politics from the left side. So, so yeah, I believe like the government is, they, they're not necessarily so interested. They don't see, as you said, uh, they don't see us as a threat. Especially when it seems like Rosselló and, and folks of his persuasion are eager to bring other kind of business, like there's this whole Portopia, the old Portopia, when they're trying to make it a tax-free haven and they're trying to bring Bitcoin and blockchain. So talk a little bit about how that parallel, that is going on parallel to what you all are doing. And do you see that as a threat? Yeah, I see that a threat. I see um, all the neoliberal, you know, moves that they are doing as a threat to the the living of the majority of the Puerto Ricans. I see as a threat the imposition of a burning trash energy producer in Aguadilla or, or in uh, in Arecibo. They are moving, you know, they're, they're doing lots of nasty things. So that basically is uh, the, the Portopian, you know, and trying to c convince the international capital, specifically the, the U.S. big capital. Yeah, the to John Paulsons of the world. Exactly, to move to Puerto Rico. But that is like the history of Puerto Rican economical policies, you know. They are so colonized that they don't see themselves like the... The Puerto Rican uh, bourgeoisie, they, they are so cowards that they don't see themselves as uh, protagonists, you know, in, in a free Puerto Rico and another Puerto Rico. They only see themselves 
as slaves or workers for the big capital. Yeah, servants of the dominant economic class. Exactly. Okay, I know you have to get back. Do you have a message for the diaspora? You mentioned its importance. What can people do who live in California, who live in Texas, who have now live in Florida? What can we do in order to support these movements? Sometimes I think I would love to go spend the summer in Puerto Rico and just help and build, but I don't know exactly I'm going to land. I don't have a lot of resources. My extended family is all over the place. Mm -hmm. So what can we do besides, of course, give money? I know money is always very fungible. Mm -hmm. We want money. But what other suggestions you might have for the diaspora? Well, of course, spread the word of the, the works that we are doing. I mean, you can check out on the Facebook page of Centro Apoyo Mutuo. When you put that in the search, you would, of course, see all the other Centro Apoyo Mutuos. So you can click and follow them all. So you can have a notion of what's going on in the different Centros de Apoyo Mutuo. You can also look for the agroecological movement in Puerto Rico. There are a lot of farms that are going on and that, are, that is part of the of this autonomous movement because if we don't produce our own food, we can talk about independence. You know, we, we receive 85% or more of the food that we eat from outside so that's ridiculous but that's part of the of the colonial politics you know they, they want us to to depend of the United States so you can do that um, yeah in doing that you can also see uh, what projects we are trying to build and with new services we are going to to be doing so you can see materials that we need for these different projects for example in the Centro Apoyo Mutuo and Caguas we are going to make a like a radio comunitaria, radio community, because we need, you know, our, our voice heard. Like in Puerto Rico, the media is controlled by maybe one or two families. So, yeah, you, we don't have, like, Centro Apoyo Mutuos, like, people don't know. Only the people that live nearby the um, Centro de Apoyo Mutuo. Um, but, yeah, they basically, the, the, the media doesn't cover us. So that's one thing you can do. And what you said, always the money, the money is important. Um, because in the underground we can buy our own things and we that also of course help for people to be working full time on these projects because we can uh, people can do this job like 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 part time probably um, we need like uh, like a core of people living for this and yeah we are not trying to depend on the foreign money or uh, money from outside to to make these projects possible yeah we're moving we are in, like, investing the money that we have in projects that will guarantee our own autonomy our own self-management mm -hmm. so yeah that money is like for building or helping us build the autonomous yeah the, the autonomous mm, how can i say society almost yeah 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 so if you had a magic wand and you could see into the future and you had the ideal future what would puerto rico look like in five years five years is too short <laughs> okay let's say 10 years well, 10 years. I mean, 10 years, a lot of other nasty hurricanes can pass um, because of, you know, and all your audience know the climate change. And so when another hurricane pass, and I hope not, Centro de Apoyo Mutuo will double or triple easily because, again, it makes a lot of sense to people. So I will see a lot and a lot of uh, Centro de Apoyo Mutuo type spreading all around the island. So that movement will, at that point, be a more powerful political movement and will have a more louder voice. 
and and people will know what is happening and the media will be covering us even though not justly but yeah they will be talking about ourselves and people will know that in Puerto Rico some good things uh, are happening in terms of trying to build a society based on solidarity with a nice relationship with the environment and a society ruled by the people for the people. Great. That's the voice of Daniel Orsini. He is visiting us straight from Puerto Rico, from Caguas. Thank you so much, Daniel. Thanks a lot.
For La Raza Chronicles, I have in the studio today Rafael Jesus Gonzalez, Poet Laureate of Berkeley. We've often had Rafael come in and record poems because he writes such topical and universal poetry. But today he's come in as the anointed one, as the Poet Laureate of Berkeley, California. Bienvenido. <laughs> Gracias, Nina. Un placer. So what poems have you brought for us? Well, I brought some poems that I thought was a very current topic on migration. An old one, actually. <laughs> a una anciana. Venga, madre. Su rebozo arrastra de la araña negra y sus enaguas le enredan los tobillos. Apoya el peso de sus años en trémulo bastón y sus manos temblorosas empujan sobre el mostrador centavos sudados. Aún todavía ve, viejecita, la jara de su aguja arrastrando colores, las flores que borda con hilazas de a tres por diez no se marchitan tan pronto como las hojas del tiempo. ¿Qué cosas recuerda? Su boca parece constantemente saborear los restos de años rellenos de miel. ¿Dónde están los hijos que parió? Hablan ahora solamente inglés y dicen que son hispanos. Sé que un día no vendrá a pedirme que les coja los matices que ya no puede ver. Sé que esperaré en vano su bendición desdentada. Miraré hacia la calle polvorienta, refrescada por alas de paloma, hasta que un chiquillo mugroso me jale de la manga y me pregunte, Señor, how much is this? To an old woman. Come, mother, your rebozo trails a black web, and your hem catches on your heels. You lean the burden of your years on shaky cane, and palsied hand pushes sweat-grimed pennies on the counter. Can you still see, old woman, the darting colored trailed needle of your trade? The flowers you embroider with three for a dime threads cannot fade as quickly as the leaves of time. What things do you remember? Your mouth seems to be forever tasting the residue of nectar-hearted years. Where are the sons you bore? 
Do they speak only English now and say they're Spanish? One day I know you will not come and ask for me to pick the colors you can no longer see. I know I'll wait in vain for your toothless benediction. I'll look into the dusty street made cool by pigeons' wings until a dirty child will nudge me and say, Señor, how much is this? You just heard Rafael Jesus Gonzalez, Poet Laureate of Berkeley, California, reading his own poetry. It's very exciting that you're the Poet Laureate because it's your habit to always write in both languages. So you're the first bilingual Poet Laureate of Berkeley. In fact, the first poet laureate of Berkeley, period. <laughs> you mean all these years Berkeley has not had a poet laureate? Berkeley has gotten perfectly well without a poet laureate since its founding. But suddenly the city decided they wanted one, and I'm very honored. Well, you were the perfect choice. <laughs> well, thank you, Nina. A perfect choice. What else have you brought? Bueno, emigración. ¿Qué sabe la mariposa de fronteras? ¿Qué sabe de banderas? Cruza todo un continente en movimiento su herencia. Así es con nosotros. Nuestra historia, migración de años, de siglos, de milenios, antes de que historia hubiera y que formáramos mitos en el cerebro. Nuestros pasos, hechos de sangre, de lágrimas, de risas, de sudor, marcan nuestra eterna búsqueda de hogar señalado por el Dios, o el águila comiéndose una ser culebra, o quién sabe qué señas arbitrarias. Pero son inseguras nuestras moradas, hogar es la tierra redonda y sin costura, la circundamos, y si patria veneramos, es pretensión, es mito, es mentira. Buscamos abrigo, alimento, libertad, la vida. Abajo con fronteras, abajo con banderas, que si justicia y paz hubiera, no tuviéramos que vagar tanto por la tierra. Migration. What does the butterfly know of borders? What does it know of flags? It crosses the whole continent, movement, its inheritance. So it is with us. Migration, our heritage of years, of centuries, of millenniums, before history was, and we formed myths within the brain. Our steps made of blood, of tears, of laughter, and of sweat mark a eternal search for home signaled by the god or the eagle eating a snake or who knows what arbitrary signs. But uncertain are our abodes, 
home is the round and seamless earth. We circle it, and if country we venerate, it is pretension, a myth, a lie. We seek shelter, food, freedom, life. Down with borders, down with flags. For if there were justice and peace, we would not have to so much roam the earth. Beautiful poem. <laughs> you know, the butterfly has become so much the symbol of immigration and the symbol for the dreamers. And you've really captured it in that poem. I think that theme seems to run throughout your work. The concept that nation and flag are just human constructs that really are in the way of our freedom. Or that's how I have heard your poetry over these years. Yeah, I guess freedom means a lot to me. And uh, and the way that we are upon, upon the earth, life, joy. And I guess that's why there's so much anger in my poems a great deal of the time. is because I feel that my love and my joy has been violated by the injustice and the utter cruelty that is so much in ascendancy in the country today. It does interrupt the joy. Don't muck with my joy. Mienten los mapas. Son cochas de parches sin sentido. De colores pasteles. Lila, celeste, lima. Limón, naranja, rosa. Con nombres, costuras arbitrarias, con que imaginamos a la tierra, pretendiendo poseerla, y le llamamos mundo. La tierra no tiene costuras, ni fronteras, ríos y barrancas, sierras, pantanos, desfiladeros, junglas y desiertos, cascadas y saltos, Mares, sí, pero nunca fronteras. Los mapas mienten. Maps lie. Maps lie. They are crazy quilts of pastel colors. Lilac, sky, lime, lemon, orange, pink. With arbitrary names and scenes with which we imagine the earth pretending to possess it and call it world. The earth does not have seams nor borders, rivers and ravines, sierras, swamps, canyons, jungles and deserts, cascades and falls, seas, yes, but never borders. Maps lie. Para decirlo claro. Dicen los bobos que venimos de mendigos, estómagos vacíos, vacías las manos para quitarles los que ya sus propios canallas y bribones les robaron. Sí, venimos con hambre, huyendo la violencia a donde la riqueza del imperio se concentra pero con las manos llenas de nuestras artesanías y labores 
corazones llenos de bailes y canciones con nuestra cocina rica en sabores. Le traemos alma a una cultura desalmada. Traemos el arco iris y prefieren el gris de sus temores. Se empeñan en construir muros si lo que se necesita es puentes. To say it clearly, the fools say that we come as beggars, stomachs empty, empty hands, to take what already their own scoundrels and knaves have stolen from them. Yes, we come hungry, fleeing violence to where the riches of the empire are concentrated, but with hands full of our crafts and labors, hearts full of dances and of songs, with a cuisine rich in flavors. We bring soul to a soulless culture. We bring the rainbow, and they prefer the grayness of their fear. They insist on building walls where there is need of bridges. I so wish our president could hear that and our Congress that we don't need walls, we need bridges. So beautifully put. He can't hear much, Nina. They're tone deaf, they're heart deaf. You know, I don't know what they can hear. I don't know what they can understand. President Trumpet Mouth doesn't even believe in science. He thinks that news that the earth is round is fake news. So one of the things that hangs over us right now is the fate of the 700,000-some-odd young people who came to this country, were brought to this country at very, very young age, so that it's the only country they know. Many of them speaking only English now. That's just what I have to say. Nuestros soñadores. El país que echa fuera por falta de documentos a sus soñadores se hiere a sí mismo. ¿Qué otra tierra conoce? ¿Qué vacío dejarían en la conciencia, en el corazón del pueblo? Es arrancarle las balanzas a la justicia, apagarle la antorcha a la libertad. Sería como si el águila con su propio pico y sus garras desrasgara su propio corazón, ya envenenado por la crueldad. De fronteras y muros, los sueños y la necesidad saben lo mismo que las mariposas, las aves, el olor de las flores. Si no protegemos a nuestros soñadores, perdemos nuestras almas y los sueños. The country that casts out for lack of documents its streamers wounds itself. What other land do they know? What emptiness would they leave in the consciousness, in the hearts of the people? It is to tear the scales from justice, to put out the torch of liberty. 
It would be as if the eagle with its own beak and its claws lacerated its own heart, already poisoned by cruelty. Our borders and walls, dreams and need, know the same as do the butterflies and the birds, the smell of the flowers. If we do not protect our dreamers, we lose our souls and our dreams. You're listening to Rafael Jesus Gonzalez, Poet Laureate, Berkeley, California. Do you have poems on other themes? Should I read you a Valentine poem? Yes. Tarjeta de San Valentín. Rosas son rojas, blancos los lirios, violetas azules, y los gatitos vienen en distintos matices. Te amo, te amo, te amo. Mis hermanas y hermanos que marchan para resistir el presidente trompudo de las manos chicas, seso pequeño, pequeño corazón y cabeza grande, de cara naranja subido, pelo amarillo orines y pescuezo desvergonzadamente colorado y su apestosa, roñosa pantilla de perros mugrosos y sus tipos. Mi corazón terrosa de miel y de leche, por mis hermanas, hermanos, todos ustedes gatos geniales. Amo, como amo, esas gorras panochas rosadas. Valentine Card Roses are red, lilies of white, and pussies come in all different hues. I love you, I love you, I love you, my sisters and brothers who march to resist potus trumpet mouth of small hands, small brain, small heart, and large head. Of bright orange face, piss yellow hair, a neck unabashedly red and his olive, mangy crew of dirty dogs and their ilk. My heart runneth over with honey and milk for my sisters, my brothers, all you cool cats. I love how I love those pink pussy hats. <laughs> and that was writ for the women's smart. And my brothers, many, many of us wearing pink pussy hats. But with a lot of determination, the abuses of this fascist government in which we find ourselves under. And we have to call things for what they are. We are under a fascist regime, and there's a fascist current in the country. And we have to be very, very sure that we resist them with all that we have. Because we have not only to lose our nation and our and our freedoms, but the very earth itself is at stake. And we just have to put ourselves on the line. Well, now that you are the Berkeley Poet Laureate, what do you feel that your tenureship as Poet Laureate is going to consist of that's going to help in that cause? Well, Nina, frankly, nothing much that I haven't been doing in my, in my 82 years on this earth. You know, I guess just the honor that has been bestowed upon me, I'm not sure how deservedly, but it gives me a little bit of recognition and certification that 
may make our voice a little bit more listened to. And you are also one of the founders of the... Of the Mexican Latin American Studies Department at Laney. You contributed so much to the breakthrough in education, the breakthrough of racist concepts, of, of history and of culture. And so this, for me, you're now being the poet laureate of Berkeley, gives more credence to that way of thinking. And even the way that you have always written poetry, that you've always insisted that your poetry be presented bilingually, people would try to corral you to just present one language if it was going to be in an anthology or if it was going to be in a reading. They'd co try to corral you and to just do the English. But you have always said, no, it has to be bilingual. Because I think that by insisting on that, that's one of the ways that you have tried to express humanism and internationalism and break down barriers and break down walls and borders and separations. For me, that's what your poetry has always been and your stance. In that one of the ways that I grew up, I was born and raised right on the Mexican-U.S. border in the Paso Juarez area, and I grew up bilingually, biculturally, and I grew up in a family that was very well educated, very well rooted, and very respectful of their culture, and they always insisted that I would always be bilingual, that I would not forego one language for the other. Uh, there was a great deal of pressure growing up. I remember in grade school uh, being punished for speaking Spanish in the, in the hallway, in the, in the playground. There was this insistence upon complete assimilation. We live in a very strange culture, actually, this culture of the United States, in a very insular in many ways. It's a culture that seems to value ignorance, to put it very bluntly. There's been great resistance to bilingual education. Other countries, they train their, their children to speak various languages, because at that age, it's very easy to learn several languages. Other countries have fostered value bilingual education, teaching their young children to speak more than one language. We've had to fight for that here in California. And my insistence, and I'm not even sure that it's called this insistence, it's just I'm heir to two muses. And they tend to speak to me simultaneously, and, and I can't separate them. My languages, the two languages in which I think and in which I write, are in constant banter with each other. My poems are single, discrete pieces in two tongues. And that's the way they are. Well, I recently learned how California became monolingual. In fact, last weekend, it was a great shock. I was visiting the town of Benicia, which housed the third capital of California during the gold rush. And soon after, the Spanish families were still powerful. The Mexican families still had power, but they were losing it fast. And all the documents, the public documents, had to be in English and Spanish. But when the state legislature got to pass the Chinese Exclusion Act, the racists slipped in 
yet another amendment to it and said that the documents of the state of California no longer had to be bilingual. They eliminated all the Spanish documents from then on with the exclusion of the Chinese. So this has been a struggle here in California. I hadn't realized that bit of history. And certainly it went again, the the treaty with Arupi Hidalgo that specified that the languages in the territories conquered, taken over by the United States, would be in both languages. But they wiped that out with the same impetus to exclude the Chinese. So the xenophobias have been in power a long time. A long time. That's one of the basic sickness of the culture, is this racism, the xenophobia that is very deep-seated in, in the culture that we've had to, to yes, fight. Yes, but also I think that some of the greatness of this country has come from the fact that it is an immigrant country, that everybody brings so much to the table, so, so much of the culture's there are people who deny that, but that's one of the things that's powerful. Let's face it, Nina. We have been an immigrant country from the very beginning. The first immigrants here were the so-called pilgrims that were kicked out of Europe and came here, we say, in the quest of freedom. If you look closely at the history, they came here for the freedom to suppress others. They brought with them intolerance, the intolerance of the Puritan. You just heard Rafael Jesus Gonzalez, Poet Laureate of Berkeley, California, reading his own poetry. You're listening to La Raza Chronicles, Crónicas de la Raza, and this is a calendar of events and happenings for the Bay Area. For Thursday, April 26th, La Santa Cecilia, with Bay Area's own La Misa Negra, will be having a night of eclectic mix of music and Latino grooves at UC Theater, 2036 University Avenue in Berkeley. Starts at 8 p.m. and is wheelchair accessible. For more information, go to theuctheater.org. For Thursday, April 26, Mission Cultural Center for Latino Arts is hosting their annual Latino LGBTQ Youth Visibility and Appreciation Night, which highlights the complex intersection and interplay of identity issues impacting LGBTQ Latino youth. Mission Cultural Center for Latino Arts is located at 2868 Mission Street in San Francisco. Starts at 6 p.m. MissionCulturalCenter.org For Friday the 27th, come celebrate a night of intercultural folklore with Arenas Dance Company, performing Afro-Cuban rhythms and traditional dance. Califia Armada will be bringing the tambores and Afro-Colombianos. And special guests coming all the way from Colombia via Austin, Texas, Kiko Villamizar. This event will be held at La Estreita Cafe, 446 East 12th Street in Oakland. Starts at 9 p.m. and is wheelchair accessible. For Saturday, April 28th, Bay Area's Discos Resaca Collective with DJ Lautaro will be joined by Colombian Gaita players Elber Alvarez and Jose Paternina, as well as the Kiko Villamizar group for a night of cumbia and tropical music. This is at La Peña Cultural Center, 3105 Shattuck Avenue in Berkeley. Starts at 8.30 p.m. 
lapeña.org. For Saturday, April 28th, come for a final viewing of master printmaker Malakia Montoya's career-spanning Art of Struggle exhibition. Montoya is credited by historians as the founder of the social serigraphy movement in San Francisco Bay Area in the mid-1960s. His unique visual expression is an art of protest depicting the resistance and strength of humanity in the face of injustice and the necessity to unite behind the struggle. This is at Acción Latina, 2958 24th Street in San Francisco. Starts at 3 p.m. AccionLatina.org For Sunday, April 29th, join Bay Area's own Diana Gameros and vocalist Dorian Woods for an intimate evening of Latino chants, sorrows, and storytelling. They will also collaborate on a few South American folk tunes. This is at Studio Grand, 3234 Grand Avenue in Oakland. Starts at 6.30 p.m. and is wheelchair accessible. StudioGrandOakland.org And for Sunday, April 29th, come spend a family-friendly afternoon of outdoor music and dance at the beautiful Albany Bulb Shoreline Park. The Son de la Bahia Collective and Love the Bulb invite you to a fandango, folk music from Veracruz, Mexico. This is at Albany Bulb, 1 Buchanan Street in Albany. Starts at 12 p.m. And this has been a calendar of events and happenings for the Bay Area. If you would like to add your event to our calendar, email us at larrazachronicles at kpfa.org. And for more information on our show, go to our Facebook page, facebook.com slash Chronicles. And to hear past shows, check us out on our SoundCloud page, soundcloud.com slash Chronicles. I hope you enjoyed tonight's show, and feliz noches a todos. Thank you.